the competent founder CEO is a superpower for the company. And it is, I would argue, one of the most compelling combinations and unfair advantages that a young and growing company can have. It's just really exciting when it happens, whether it's a, a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos, pre-insanity Elon Musk. It gets really, <laughs> really interesting and compelling. So this episode is really about how do you end up in that ideal situation? How do you as a founder keep up and adapt with your startup as it changes and as what it needs from you changes so that you can end up in this supercharged, super ideal state? We all know how expensive software engineers are, and that's why it makes sense to give them the best tools to be as productive as possible. At Google, there was an entire division devoted to developer tooling and developer productivity. Now with SourceGraph, you can give your engineers the same superpowers that Google software engineers get. SourceGraph is a code intelligence platform that provides tools like code search, advanced analytics, and bulk refactoring. Check them out at sourcegraph.com slash the startup podcast. N14 are a specialist recruiting partner, finding teams of missionary engineers who are excited to work with your startup. They act as an extension of your brand into their network of incredible engineers. Check them out at n14.io. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley. At any given time, I'm working with a small handful of startups as a strategic advisor to help them avoid landmines and dead ends and fast forward to the best high-growth answers as quickly as possible. And I'm Yaniv, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups and am now co-founder at Circular, a high-growth startup. Our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley-style disruption at scale. And on today's episode, we're going to discuss the founder's journey and how the role of founder changes quite radically as your company scales up. And if you're a founder, what to do about it. If you're working with a founder, how to relate to that changing role. Now, as we talk about this through the episode, there is a built-in assumption that Yanev and I have that I think we should make explicit, which is that one of the advantages of startups is that they are founder-led, that the CEO and oftentimes the CTO are actually co-founders of the business. But you can talk about a lot of the advantages of startups, that they're created from whole cloth, that they have no technical debt, that they are able to raise a lot of capital, grow fast, rethink things from first principles. They do not suffer from innovators' dilemma. So as an, like an economic engine, as a vehicle for change, startups really have a lot of advantages. But one of the advantages that is often not talked about enough is the advantage of having a founder as the CEO, as the CTO, because that allows the startup to move in ways that are incredibly nimble in a way that an executive from the outside who didn't create the startup cannot do because they're able to make decisions, big bold bets, build consensus and build what you might call a cult of personality, a kind of execution authority or strategic authority around what they wanna do and without really even much justification. Now that can work against you if the founder is sending the company off in weird and wonderful directions. 
But if you have the right founder with the right instincts, the right methodologies for wielding that power, it can work very, very much in your favor. And you can think of the Steve Jobs of the world, you can think of the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, you can think of the Larry Page and Sergey Brin's of the world from Google. You can think of these incredible founder stories that were absolutely essential at the very, very beginning of their journey. So if that assumption is true, then the last thing you want to do is remove the founder from the CEO or CTO position if you can avoid it. And so therefore, the most ideal case is that you as a founder are able to adapt, grow and change as fast, if not faster than your startup. So that's what really this episode is about. What does that adaptation look like over the lifetime of your startup? We are talking about ideals here and the absolute ideal is that founder CEO. But it's interesting in the examples that you mentioned, Larry and Sergey had a CEO imposed on top of them, Eric Schmidt, at a pivotal time in the company's journey. And I think that was generally considered to be a good thing. The Steve Jobs story is even more complex where the traditional narrative is he was thrown, thrown out of his company, bad outside CEOs took it into the wilderness and he came back and made it a success. And while most of that is true, the reason he was removed as CEO was at the time he was driving the company off a cliff. And although there was a lot of missed opportunity and value destruction by the people who replaced him, the fact that Apple even survived was probably due to the fact that he was removed as CEO. So there is this very interesting thing where the founder CEO is the ideal, but the most important thing is to have a CEO who is able to perform the function that is required of them at that stage in the company's growth. And if the founder is able to go on that journey, and with this episode, we hope to make a modest contribution to helping founders go on that journey fast enough to keep up with their company, that is ideal. But I would take a company with an outside competent CEO ahead of a company with a founder CEO who has grown the company to a level where they're no longer competent in the role that is required of them at the time. The founder can be the company's greatest asset or its biggest liability as the CEO. And I think Steve Jobs, because of his inability to grow and mature as fast as Apple was, was ultimately a liability at the beginning. The people who replaced him were not very effective. But I think he needed to go off into the wilderness and learn what it meant to be a great product person and a great decision maker and be humbled a little bit before he could come back and actually take the role that he needed to take in Apple. But if another person came as a CEO to Apple and had the same ideas that Steve Jobs did, I don't know whether he would have been able to affect the same change at the same speed that Steve Jobs did because of the cult of personality around the founder. Yes, I agree. Founder has superpowers. If they can marry those superpowers to competence in the role at the time, then there is no one better. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really interesting exploration, I think, that we've done there. Where competent CEO is more important than the founder CEO, but the competent founder CEO is a superpower for the company. And it is, I would argue, one of the most compelling combinations and unfair advantages that a young and growing company can have. It's just really exciting when it happens, whether it's a, a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos, pre-insanity Elon Musk. It gets really, <laughs> really interesting and compelling. So this episode is really about how do you end up in that ideal situation? How do you as a founder keep up and adapt with your startup? as it changes and as what it needs from you changes so that you can end up in this supercharged, super ideal state. So Chris, let's maybe start at the beginning. 
talking about what happens as your company grows to the role of founder and especially a founder CEO. Yeah, Yanev, you and I were just talking about this before the recording started and you framed it in a really nice summarized way, which is that you you start to move further and further away from doing the work of the business to designing and building the business itself. I describe it as building the thing that builds the thing. So maybe one way to say that is you become more and more of an executive as your company grows, which may or may not be something that you want to do, actually. The role changes so much that if you want to have an effective company and retain the founder as a CEO, then that founder has to go through a really profound journey of change. And it can be easy to think, okay, I was a CEO last year. I'm the CEO this year. I'll be the CEO next year. If anything, it's a gradual evolution. But what you actually see is that as the company grows, there are a set of fairly revolutionary changes over the years where the founder's role as a CEO fundamentally changes multiple times. And as you say, Chris, it's from this operator, hustler, get anything done, where really your job every day is to just make things happen to building the machine that builds the machine. So your product is effectively your team, your organization, that engine that takes investor capital and strategy and people and turns it into value. And that is your job. And that's a very different job. And the founder CEO journey only works well if the founder is willing and able to become that executive to change who they are and what they do for the benefit of the company. Your job is to work on yourself so that you remain that competent leader for the company. So you're nearly building the machine that builds the machine that builds the machine. And I think it can seem sometimes indulgent to some people to work on themselves when there are so many other problems in the business always. But if you do not work on yourself, then you will place an absolute ceiling on the ability of the company to succeed. I absolutely love that, Yanev. It is. You're building the thing that builds the thing that builds the thing. Oh my goodness. That's super cool. And by listening to this episode, you are building the thing that builds the thing that builds the thing that builds the thing. <laughs> so there you go. We're going super metaverse. This is really, really interesting. So you might say actually the, the most important skill of a CEO is actually adaptation, is to be able to go on that journey with the startup and be what your startup needs you to be as it evolves, as various problems come up through each stage, but also through the changing stages of your company and to be able to grow as fast, if not faster than your startup. And actually at Uber, we had that as one of our key performance indicators for all functions. Are you growing as fast or faster than Uber? And one might even argue that Travis failed to do that at Uber and was one of the reasons why he was ultimately ousted. So it's a really interesting skill you have to develop. My, my co-founder and Circular's CEO, Nick Ramsey, he actually has this concept that we talk about internally within the founding team of personal runway, which is how long do we have at our current level of competence before we are no longer competent at our jobs as the startup grows? And when you talk about actually staying ahead of where the business is, you need to keep extending your personal runway. If you get to the end of that runway, then you are bad news. You are now hurting the business. And you could say, you know, what, what reminded me was when you were talking about Travis is perhaps he hit the end of his personal runway. Of course, the faster the business is growing, you could say the faster that it's burning your runway. So you need to keep up even more effectively. So let's talk about some of the symptoms that you might be experiencing 
you personally might be experiencing as a founder or your company might be experiencing around you and because of you. If you are not growing as fast as your startup is, you're not meeting the needs of your startup and you have not adapted quickly enough. I think the first thing you would notice as a founder, and I've experienced this myself, I've probably experienced all of these things myself actually, is what I called once the gap. I was once lamenting to my chief operating officer that there's this gap where I seem to be unable to articulate what I want to see, what I want the company to do, and have that be understood and translated into effective action. And I, I couldn't somehow close this gap. And this was early in my career. And the COO told me something that was maybe quite obvious in hindsight, which was I needed to do a better job of articulating myself and to do many of the things we're going to go through throughout this episode to close that gap. So that there's a number of tools and techniques for this, but the sense that I had was just this gap between what I was saying or what I was able to say, how I was articulating myself and what people were hearing and understanding. The other symptom here is that you have this sense that there are really just poor performers around you. Either your executive team, your middle managers, your rank and file operators, they're just not good enough. There's a sense perhaps that your processes are bureaucratic, they're just slowing everything down and there's a lot of motion, but not a lot of action. And then ultimately, and maybe this is really more of a summary, it feels like just everything is going too slowly. Nothing's getting done. When the, when the startup was at a smaller stage, things were getting shipped, things were getting done, things were working fine. But now it feels like there's more people, more resources, but less momentum. And so those are, the, I think, from a founder point of view, some of the symptoms you'd expect to see. Yeah, that's right. As you were saying that, Chris, I realized that we talked about those being four symptoms, but it's really one symptom <laughs> expressed in four different ways, which is we talked about building the thing that builds the thing. And what is the thing <laughs> in that context? It is the company, the ability to translate capital and ideas and strategy into action and results. And what founders will tend to find is when they're at that early stage, they know how to operate the thing and the thing is doing the stuff they want the thing to do. And then the thing grows and changes and they no longer are able to operate the thing, right? So suddenly they feel this disconnection between their desires or their strategy and their deployment of capital and the outputs and outcomes that they're expecting. It's nearly like they're hitting the accelerator and the car's not moving or it's going in the wrong direction or it's very sluggish. And they're like, damn, like it's just not working the way I want it to. And I don't know why. And then you think, okay, my team's not good. The poor performers, there's lots of bureaucracy. Why is all this bureaucracy here? And everything's just going way too slowly. And that's a good segue to the company's view. Chris, you talked about how does it feel to the founder? Now let's talk about how the same situation feels to the people working at the company. So the first thing is they feel like they're being thrashed or we sometimes use the term at Google being randomized, which is when a senior executive comes in without adequate context, without understanding of the nuances and subtleties of what's going on and just provides a bunch of vague directives and disappears and expects you to somehow reshuffle. And it, it's very damaging. Now, why does that happen? Imagine going back to the founder view that you've got this machine and everything feels too slow and sluggish and you, you feel like, okay, I need to take matters into my own hands. Things aren't working. I need to do something. So what's that something? You're going to organize a bunch of meetings with the teams. You've got to try to tell them what to do, give them high expectations, create a sense of urgency so that good things happen. And then this can become a vicious cycle because if the team has been randomized, 
what the founder does is they're actually making things worse and things get even slower. And so then they come in and intervene again a few months later or a few weeks later with a different plan. They're like, oh, that didn't work. Let's do something else. And so if you're sitting there as an employee at this type of company, it feels like your leadership is incompetent. It can't make up its mind. It doesn't understand the context. And they just keep sending you off on these different death marches. And then, then they change their mind again and they're wasting your time. And that is incredibly frustrating. And even worse in a way is it starts to eat away at your confidence in your leadership of the company. You start to lose trust. You start to lose faith. And we've talked a bit before about how, when you're building a startup that you want to create a bit of a cult and there is an element. And Chris, I think you even referred to a personality cult around the founders and around the leadership. And if you break that trust, if you know, the emperor is not wearing any clothes all of a sudden, that can be very hard to rebuild. And I actually have an anecdote from my early days at Google about that, which is my early days at Google were no longer super early days. I joined in 2006. We already had several thousand employees. And this was at a time when Larry and Sergey were just in the death throes of running the company as if it was a small startup and doing this randomizing stuff. They would come in for, with an individual team, give them a review. They only had 20 minutes at this point because they were already running a giant corporation. And they'd give you a bunch of orders without understanding all the context. And then they'd leave never to be heard from again. And when that happened to my team, when I was at Google early on as a fairly fresh graduate, Sergey came, told us a bunch of stuff to do, and then he left. And I asked my manager, okay, that all seemed pretty infeasible. What are we going to do about it? And he's like, oh, just ignore him. Can you imagine the effect that has on the respect for this incredibly successful founder and leader of this iconic business? When you're told, oh, you know, you don't have to listen to what they tell you because it's, it's no good anyway. And they're, they're going to forget what they told you. So that is for the founder, a bit of a nightmare scenario where they have become irrelevant and that's the last thing you want to be. So that's, I think a big part of the company view. Other things that happen that are related is an inability to get aligned. So different parts of the company are doing different things that might be because they heard from the founder and got thrashing randomizing orders on different days of the week. It might be because they simply have their own view of what they need to do. And they haven't been able to coordinate that with a clearly articulated and communicated and reinforced strategy. So everything can feel kind of vague and undefined. The only place where it comes together is in the CEO's head and the CEO is not very good at expressing what is in their head. And another thing that happens fairly quickly as a company grows, as people start to feel a lack of career growth, a lack of career direction, your first 10, 15 people are happy enough saying, okay, I'm just an early employee of this, like hopefully rocket ship startup. And I'm just going to do the thing. But after a little while, and it happens sooner than you'd think, probably by the time you're at 20 to 30 people, a little bit of time has passed. People start to think, how am I progressing in this? What is my role? How do I perhaps get pay rises? How do I get better at my job? Who's giving me guidance? Who's giving me feedback? And if you have no structure in place for that, because you haven't thought about it, then people start to get dissatisfied. Wow. We've really described a very, very dysfunctional company. So if you're sitting there nodding away at some or all of those things, whether you're a founder or an operator in one of these companies, the next question at the top of your mind is probably going to be, 
yes. How do I fix that? I need to fix that. So how do we start to rotate over to empowering the founder to be a really great founder and to meet the needs of their growing company? Ultimately, there is a series of tools, a series of techniques that you would use to one degree or another at various stages of the company. We're going to rattle them off. You may not do all of them at the very beginning. But you might actually do more than you think. So you can start establishing the pattern and the template well. And you might want to review these things every six to 12 months to make sure that they're still reflective of your best thinking. In fact, one of the things you need to keep in mind throughout this entire part of the podcast is that your company culture and the way your company is organized and the processes you're using basically need to be rethought every doubling. So when you go from two to four people, when you go from four to eight, from eight to 16, you're actually going through really fundamental shifts. So it's worth revisiting many of the tools and techniques we're going to talk about today. So let's talk about these tools that a great leader and a great organization employs to build the thing that builds the thing. As the CEO, or really as any leader at any part of the business, at any layer in the business, you really have kind of four or five key things you're needing to do. These are essential things of leadership. You need to provide context for the people who report to you, who get their guidance from you, for them to be able to make trade-offs, make decisions, take actions within a given frame, within a given set of context, so that they have as much of the information as possible to be able to make decisions without you in the room. You need to bring the right people into your team. You need to organize them well to collaborate and coordinate with each other. And you need to allocate capital or assign the right projects, the right focus areas, the right tasks. But let's unpack some of the communication tools or tactics you might do to do those things. When you think about context setting, there is a series of tools you might use. The first is really providing a business strategy. And again, this actually applies to leaders at all layers of the business. So if you're the CEO, you want to be providing the high level global business strategy to your entire company. But if you're also a group product manager, you want to be providing the strategy for your group. If you're in a squad, you want to be providing the strategy for your squad. And that strategy should include, well, what's your mission? What is your ultimate vision? If you're doing all the things you're going to do over the next two or three years, what does the world look like after you've affected that change? What is the competitive landscape? What are your strategic priorities or pillars? What are the problems you're solving? Writing that down explicitly and putting it into a document I would describe as a canonical document, as a document that people being onboarded, people doing work can refer back to, and that is constantly reviewed and updated is really, really important. Provides the context for everybody to make great decisions and trade-offs without you being in the room. The next thing you need to do in terms of context is you need to define what great looks like on your team and across your company. What does it mean to be a great PM? What does it mean to be a great EM, a great designer? You need to define these roles really, really well to such granularity that those definitions can actually be used in performance reviews. They can be used in hiring. They can be used for individuals to go look at those rubrics and say, oh yeah, I'm doing those things well and I'm not doing these other things well. Or, hey, that PM or that EM I'm interacting with is not doing these things that I should be able to expect from him because the company has defined this as a great PM. You need to define what great products look like. What are the principles of your company when it comes to products? What does great engineering look like? What are the engineering principles and practices of the company? 
what are the cultural values that define what great behavior looks like in the company? And what are the leadership principles? What does great leadership look like at the company? The, the bit that really resonates and is at the core of this context setting bit, Chris, is you talked about making decisions or doing things when you're not in the room. So when you said in context, as an early stage founder CEO, it can feel like it's not very productive because all you're doing really is talking or writing stuff down. You're not even making decisions. You're not doing stuff, right? But like what you're actually doing is you're scaling yourself because the activity of setting context around strategy, what does great look like around values, around culture, is what you're actually trying to do is create a mental model of yourself, a virtual you that can travel in other people's minds into the room with them. And so if you've done it successfully, people in your team could say, well, let's say, Chris, you're the CEO. You're not in the room, but they would say, what would Chris want? And they would make the same decision as you would, or a very similar decision a lot of the time, because they understand the context. So when you talk about leverage, leveraging yourself as a leader, scaling yourself as a leader, as you get bigger, when you can't be in all the rooms and you really can't, like it's just impossible when you can't be across all the details, because again, it's impossible. What you are trying to do is create a virtual avatar of yourself that everyone can carry along with them. And what is more powerful? What is more highly leveraged? What is a better use of your time than to basically spread your worldview and your mental model to every single person in your organization? Yeah, I think that's a really incredibly powerful way of thinking about this. That is what the context setting does. It allows you to be out of the room, but have your spirit, your mental model, all of the implicit stuff in your head still be in the room, in your leaders, in your teams, in your operators' minds, so they can make those decisions hopefully aligned with how you would make them. Now, of course, this assumes the people in the room, in your absence, are great decision makers. They're able to reason in ways that you would think are really, really great. So the next key thing here is getting the right people in the room. So of course that comes down to hiring, bringing the great people together. We have a whole episode on this, so you should go check it out, but it really comes down to sourcing from great sources holding the bar high when making decisions about who to hire, onboarding really, really well, and continuous professional development so that the people in the rooms who are holding that little avatar that Yanev, you described of your context, of your decision-making principles, they're able to make those great decisions. Are you tired of hearing your engineers complain about technical debt and legacy code? Well, give them SourceGraph and then they'll be able to do something about it. SourceGraph's batch update tool allows them to make significant updates to code in just a few clicks. As we talk about it, often the unifying theme comes to my mind. Is it about leverage, folks? Like when you are an early stage founder, the best way to get leverage is to use your superior knowledge and skills and context to get things done quickly, right? You, you are the machine, you are the thing that is getting things done. But as the company grows, if you want to scale yourself, you are no longer providing value by being additive. You get the most leverage, the most value by being multiplicative. So everything you're doing, you should be thinking, what is the multiplier effect that I'm having as a leader? So in setting context, you are helping every single person in your company make better decisions. In hiring well, you are lifting the standard of every single person in your company. It is an incredibly powerful use of time. And some of the stuff that might feel more productive or more like quote unquote real work, which is like being in the meetings, 
providing incredible insights and making decisions. That is not multiplicative. You are not using your time well. So hiring, as you said, Chris, there is an entire episode about that. But the point we're making here is simply that as a founder CEO, if you feel like you've got this gap and things aren't working well, one of the things you need to be spending your time on, even if it doesn't feel like the most urgent and high priority thing is having a really great hiring process and bringing great people on board. Yeah. You said this twice in the last two pieces here, Yanev, and I, I couldn't agree more, which is that if you're a founder suffering from this syndrome of trying to scale yourself and closing the gap, the things we're discussing here can feel like not real work. <laughs> they can feel really painful and frustrating and unnecessary. And like, why doesn't everybody just know better? And I'm not really in the meeting getting the thing done. So it feels unnatural and you are very likely to want to avoid it or be frustrated by it or, or dismiss it as not valuable. So your point there is really well taken, which is it's, it's almost like imposter syndrome where, you know, you should actually move towards imposter syndrome. This is scaling syndrome and you need to move towards that feeling like this. Wow. This feels like really unnecessary or bureaucratic or painful, and I, I'm not doing the things I want to be doing or should be doing, you, you kind of want to move towards that a little bit uh, and make sure that you are doing the things that scale yourself. So then the next area that is essential for a leader is to provide day-to-day -day direction, but in a high scale way. And so to your point, Yanev, you should not be attending every meeting and randomizing the teams. But you need to establish a process by which you set priorities at a very, very high level and your organization is able to digest those priorities, think through the tactical execution and respond to you with their plan over the next cycle, whether that cycle is three, six, 12 months. We again have a whole episode about this, I think, in the scaling up episode about how to set business level OKRs and squad level OKRs and narratives. But that cadence needs to be established, that process needs to be established. And personally, as that CEO who's trying to scale, need to run it really, really well, both at the beginning where you're setting it up at the beginning of the cycle and at the end when you're holding everybody accountable to what they did and what they did not do. There's nearly this contrary, this paradoxical feeling where if you later on in the journey of your company feel like you've had a really productive day because you're in all these meetings and you told people what to do and stuff happened, then probably you didn't have a very good day. Whereas if you feel like maybe you didn't get that much done because you were busy sharing the vision and polishing your communications and working with HR to improve your hiring processes and, and performance reviews and so on, it feels somewhat vague and abstract. That's the stuff you should be working on. And the reason this is really important is because it shows how things go wrong. Going all the way back to the beginning, when we talked about the gap and that founder view, things aren't doing what they want to do. Your natural reaction as a founder, especially founders tend to have an action bias. So your reaction is to do something quickly. And that's when that thrashing and the randomizing comes in because you're like, okay, something's got to happen. I've got to do something. Whereas what you really need to do, and we talk at Airtasker sometimes about slowing down to speed up. You need to be methodical and thoughtful because upgrading and repairing a machine is not something you do in a mad rush. Of course, there is time pressure, but you need to be thinking about the big picture. And that is why everything you are doing is about scaling up the ability of that machine to work in the way that you want it to. The next big thing you need to do as a leader is to follow through. 
I find sometimes that there's a lot of planning, a lot of strategery going on, but when it comes to actually operationalizing that, things fall down. And sometimes what I call sticking the landing. So you need to establish great operational patterns for how you're holding the people immediately around you in your sphere of influence. You're holding them to account and checking in with them with some regularity and in a methodical way so that you're not randomizing, but you are providing check-ins. And so defining a schedule of meetings with your key lieutenants, your key stakeholders, your key pivotal people, and ensuring they in turn are doing the same thing with their sphere of influence, their direct reports, the stakeholders around them. And to make sure that all of that planning, all that strategy, all of that context setting is being propagated down and also being reflected back in the right way across the organization. Yeah. And this is in a sense about process. It's interesting because I've learned fairly early on in my startup journey that people don't even like the word process because process sounds like bureaucracy and bureaucracy is bad and slows things down. Of course, there are a lot of processes that are unnecessary bureaucracy and are bad, but the correct alternative to bad processes is not no processes. It's the right processes and the good processes. And that is very contextual to the stage that your company is at. So again, as a leader, you need to create the processes that are effectively the scaffolding or the bones that allow you to actually operate as a company. And so that is really important. Now, the last item on the list of a great founder CEO, but really, again, a, about leadership at every level is allocating capital. I don't know that we want to unpack that one too much, but it essentially is about picking the right projects, funding the right teams, moving headcount and other resources to the right places. You know, I was once setting up the squad structure that we've discussed in a previous episode, setting up a large scale up and setting up the squads and the leadership team was very nervous about this because they were used to having direct control over the product roadmap. And now I was asking them to push accountability to the edges and letting the product managers develop their own roadmaps. And they were saying, well, what if we come up with a net new idea and none of these squads have the right mission and they haven't added it to their roadmap and you know, we can't get what we want done. We can't make big, bold bets. And I said to them, you're forgetting the most important power that you have, which is basically the power of the purse, the, the power of allocating capital. And so if there is a bet you want to make and there isn't a squad with the right mission or a squad with the right bandwidth, then you have the power to stand up new squads. And that is probably the first best thing you can do besides the, the regular cycle planning with your head of product in order to stand up new parts of the product team and fund that part well. And so that's really what capital allocation is about. And that allows you to build out new bets, new processes, new parallelism, and so on. Another metaphor maybe that came to my mind as you were talking about that is that of an interface. Let's say you're driving a car. I think this is a good interface. This is a good example here. Say you're driving a car. You are not in the engine as you're driving it, like pushing different components together. You have a clear interface that gives you a clear set of actions, right? You can accelerate, you can brake, you can change gears, you can steer and a few other things. It's a fairly simple interface. And when you are running a company, what you need to do, if you're going to be successful at scale is create an interface. And that looks like a way of communicating with people, processes for hiring, processes for performance management, planning, capital allocation. So you have two jobs. One is to create the interface. And then the other is to actually run the company by operating that interface, not by interfering directly with the components. Cause you've built a machine. The machine knows what to do if you've built it well. 
but you need to operate the interface. And so rather than going into a team's meeting and telling them to change their micro priorities, the correct move to make is to allocate capital in a particular way or to provide the right context so that the team can make its own decisions about what to prioritize that is coherent with what you would want. And so again, I'm a bit of a metaphor person. I've thrown a few different ones out here, but when you talk about how do you change as a founder from that very early stage where there kind of isn't a machine, you are the machine to that later stage where you've built the thing that builds the thing is you need to become conversant at both creating that machine and then operating it on the terms, using the interface that a machine of that complexity needs to be operated at. I absolutely love that. I love your metaphors. I'm usually metaphor guy in meetings, but Yanev, I must say you out metaphor me. So I'm very impressed. The other thing I'll say before we wrap up is that founders should have permission to feel a certain amount of imposter syndrome and a certain amount of being out of their depth. I think that anything worth doing, anyone who with sufficient ambition, who is trying to do something sufficiently interesting or difficult or valuable in the world should be experiencing some amount of imposter syndrome and some amount of being out of their depth. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, you want to move towards those feelings. You want to move towards the feeling that what you're doing is maybe a little bit removed from the day-to-day -day execution and you're becoming a little bit more of an executive than a doer. You want to move towards the feeling that, hey, this is this company is really scary and, and I don't really necessarily know what I'm doing and I'm not sure if I should be the one to be doing this. That's okay. Everybody with any amount of ambition and hustle and momentum in their life feels that way. Move towards it, get comfortable with it, and focus on adaptation rather than self-recrimination, sabotage, frustration, and so on. You're not the first, you're not the only, and you're not the last. And perhaps maybe in dealing with that, lean on people you trust. Lean on friends, lean on family, lean on advisors, lean on one or two of your key lieutenants. It's not something you should be ashamed of. Now, I wouldn't go around advertising it to everyone all the time. As a wonderful Star Trek quote, which I'm going to butcher from Captain Picard, a leader should know their limitations, but shouldn't be broadcasting it to everyone all the time. <laughs> but you, you should certainly be aware of your limitations. You should be certainly getting comfortable with your limitations. You should certainly get comfortable with your imposter syndrome. You should certainly be honest and earnest and authentic with people. But you shouldn't be just telling everyone all the time, wow, I'm out of my depth and I'm completely screwed here. But find a few people, trust them, lean on them, and treat yourself kindly. 100%. Yeah, it's something that I definitely feel. In fact, I've been feeling it this week. And the reason you mentioned it in this context, Chris, is that doing the right things can often make the imposter syndrome feel worse because that thing that I mentioned a few times about, it doesn't feel like real work. You can get to the end of the week and it's not clear whether you have done a good job or not. Not immediately clear, especially if you start to doubt yourself because the results are deferred. You need to have that right level of confidence, but also a vulnerability that allows those doubts in and allows you to deal with them. And the aim with imposter syndrome is not to eliminate it. It is to learn to live with it and keep doing what you're doing. And Chris, I think you provided a number of good tips on how to learn to live with imposter syndrome. The last thing I'll say on this is get comfortable with increasing lag. I think as a great entrepreneur, you should have a level of paranoia or hustle or discomfort with bureaucracy or things that move slowly. 
but as an increasingly mature executive at an increasingly large company, you need to develop a certain level of patience with the process. Things will become a little bit more laggy. They should not grind to a halt. And your sense that things are moving too slowly is probably a good sense to have and a good paranoia and frustration to have. But be careful about over-indexing on that. So to a degree, get comfortable with that slightly increased lag, even while you are continuing to inject hustle and speed into your organization and trying to optimize it over time. All right, Yadev, that was our episode about the founder journey. I think there's a, a lot in there for founders and non-founders alike to take away. So hopefully that was useful to everybody. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on all the social medias and send us feedback about the show. We love that. We thrive on that. And we most especially love it when you share the show with your networks on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and so on. It really means a lot to us and helps grow the audience and ultimately make this more fun and bring some value to a wider range of people. People often ask how to work with us. So Yanev, how can people find you and how can they work with you? I am quite active on both LinkedIn and Twitter. I am working full-time on my startup, Circular. So I have very limited time available for consulting, but if you have a very short gig that you feel that I'm just the right person for, I'm always happy to chat. How about you, Chris? Yeah, I'm on all the social media as at Chris Saad. At any given time, I might have one or two slots for advisory work. So you can learn about that at chrissaad.com slash advisory. And we also have newsletters on our personal websites. We'll link to those in the show notes. And don't forget to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Otherwise, great to chat as always, Yanev. Likewise, Chris. It was fun. We'll catch you in the next one. Back when I worked at Google, one of my favorite parts of the developer experience was a tool called Code Search. It made developing the code base a breeze, so you could understand what was going on so much faster. Seriously addictive stuff, and I've missed it ever since, until now. Sourcegraph's code search functionality is built on the exact same technology as Google's code search, so that you can give your software engineers a Google-level productivity boost. Check them out at sourcegraph.com slash the startup podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by N14. We love N14 because they put your priorities as a startup first. For example, most agency recruiters charge a percentage of the candidate's salary, but that means that if you need to offer a little bit more to close the deal, you end up paying more. How does that make sense? So instead, N14 charges you a flat rate no matter what the salary is. Even better, they offer an installment plan so that your precious cash flow is impacted as little as possible. Check them out at n14.io.